Progress. All right, friends, let's jump in. This is Daily Power Parsha. The, the day today is Monday, July 5th, 2021. This is our independent, our formal Independence Day holiday day edition of DPP. Um, Torah portions this week, and I say that with a plural because we have a double header. I always love the double headers. Double header this week is the portion of. Matos and Masse. Let me, I'm just going to mute everybody to get a nice clean background. So we have Matos and Masse, and I'm going to pull it up so that we can jump in on the reading together. These are the last two portions of the book of Numbers, and uh, this is it. This is going to take us into Deuteronomy. So this is a very special, very special conversation, very special week. I'm going to share my screen. Let's begin. All right. Um, Oh, this is the wrong Torah portion. Look at that. Let's go back. Let's get the right Torah portion. Matos. Or Matot. Matot Masse. Reading. Here we go. Numbers chapter 30, verse number 2. Remember the setting. Always important to remember where we are and what we are and who we are and how we are. But in this case, it's all about context. It's all about setting. The Jewish people... This is after 40 years of wandering. They weren't really wandering. They were just kind of in a holding pattern until they were able to enter the land of Israel after the decree following the sin of the spies. So the Jews have fulfilled that mandate of 40 years of um, holding patterning. And now it's time for the final, the final um, uh, uh, journey into the land of Israel. Of course, without Moses, it's going to be with Joshua as we explored in last week's Torah portion. They're in the plains of Moab, but there are still more mitzvot. There are still more commandments to share, including the commandments. At the beginning of this week's Torah portion, Numbers chapter 30, verse number 2, in our double Torah portion, Matot let's begin. Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing the Lord has commanded. All right, so here we go. This is what God has told me to tell you, and he tells this, Moses does, to the heads of the tribes. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or makes an oath to prohibit himself, he shall not violate his word. So the first, this is a very, very powerful line. Somebody makes a vow or an oath. So a vow to the Lord may, it means when you pledge something. You know, I will do something. That's what a vow is. And an oath to prohibit is something where a person would say, you know, I... Take an oath never to, never again to do this, that, or the other, or not to do such and such. So this would be a vow, would be a positive thing, a vow, you know, to do something. An oath would be a prohibition. So if some, but what, if somebody says it, then he shall not violate his word. You got to keep your word. According to whatever came out of his mouth, he shall do. So here we have the idea that it's very important that we speak accurately and that we carry through with our pledges verse number four now we get to a situation where you have a young girl who makes an oath the question is you know can well not the question is but the Torah is going to say that her father is allowed to annul her oath considering the age and stage etc of the young girl here we go if a woman makes a vow to the Lord or imposes a prohibition upon herself while in her father's one second can you guys see me? Am I back? The internet connection looks like it cut out for a second. Am I back? Yes? 
Thumbs up if you guys can hear me, yes? Yes. All right, yes. great. Thank you. So if a woman makes a vow to the Lord or impose a prohibition upon herself while in her father's house in her youth. So, so we're talking about a young girl who makes an oath and maybe she didn't know what she was saying or she did know, but she didn't mean it or whatever it is. So what's the law? So here we go. If her father heard her vow or her prohibition, which she had prohibited upon herself. Remember, there's two things, either a vow of a commitment to something or an oath of prohibition. So either one, if her father gets wind of it, if he's like, oh, hey, my daughter just said this, yet her father remains silent. So if he hears it and remains silent, then all her vows shall stand. And any prohibition that she has imposed upon herself shall stand. So in other words, if her father hears, imagine a child, right? They make a commitment. They say something. They're going to do something. Or they're not going to do something. Father's there. The parent hears it. And doesn't say no. Doesn't, doesn't protest. So then it's a valid vow or a valid oath. However, verse 6, but if her father hinders her on the day he hears it, in other words, hinders her means protests. If the father says, no, that's like, that's not possible, or that's not a good idea. If the father kind of pushes back on it, then all her vows and her prohibitions that she imposed upon herself um, shall not stand. The Lord will forgive her because her father hindered her. In other words, basically, it's not, it's completely null and void, and it does not count now. But if she is betrothed to a man with her vows upon her or by an utterance of her lips which she has imposed upon herself. And her husband hears it, but remains silent on the, day she, on the day he hears it. Her vow shall stand, and her prohibition, which she has imposed upon herself, shall stand. So we have the, the idea here also um, of, it's interesting, it says betrothed, which means it's in a state of somewhat of an engagement and not necessarily a full marriage, even though it says husband, but it could be husband-to-be. Either way, and the question is here about the age in whatever context this is, we're saying here a similar thing, that the, the husband can say, not a good idea, and therefore it's null and void to her benefit. But if he hears it and he revokes it, then indeed she's off the hook, and the vow is not a vow, and the oath is not an oath, and it says the Lord will forgive her. What that means essentially is that, um, that it's, not, it's not considered an oath or a vow. In other words, it's, it, in Judaism, it's very problematic to make an oath to, to make a vow and to break it or to make an oath and break it but in this case when it's annulled this is called hataras nadarim annulment of vows there is a process by which one can annul it by the way in case you're wondering what when do we do annulment of vows we literally do it every year on, on yom kippur literally kol nidre is the annulment of vows for the entire community right the kol nidre the opening um prayer of yom kippur etc. Right? All of we say all of the vows and all of the oaths and all of the prohibitions that I took upon myself, etc., should be null and void, right? And nothing should be held against us. Now it's a question, why why is that the you know, why do we start um, Yom Kippur with, with annulment of vows? And that's that's a Yom Kippur conversation we could talk about another time. But the point is, I'm just trying to bring in context in, in, in our collective ex Jewish experience where we find this idea of annulment of vows. And what we're saying here is for younger, for, um, for a, how do we start? We started with a person needing to, number one, keep their oath. A young, a young girl, it could be annulled by the, by the, by the father, a young girl engaged to a husband could be, could be annulled by, by him. Um, let's continue. 
As for the vow of a widow or divorced woman, whatever she prohibited upon herself will remain upon her. Right? So then, that's it. She has to get it annulled in another way. But if she vowed in her husband's house or imposed a prohibition upon herself with an oath, and her husband heard her remain silent and did not hinder her, all her vows shall stand, and every prohibition she imposed upon herself shall stand. So the idea here is that an annulment of vow is actually a beneficial thing because it lets one off the hook. Because let's say a person said, I'm never going to have, uh, I'm never going to eat meat again. I'm going to be a vegetarian. Well, that's, I know it's not a religious thing necessarily, but it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an oath. It's a prohibition. It's t- taking a prohibition upon oneself. And that, and that would mean that it's binding. One would have to annul that, theoretically. So, again, we're just talking about how, how to get it annulled, and there's different ways. Um, if her husband revokes them on the day he hears them, anything issued from her lips regarding her vows or self-imposed prohibition shall not stand. Her husband has revoked them, and the Lord shall forgive her. Okay, now, any vow or any binding oath of self-affliction, her husband can either uphold it or revoke it. However, if her husband remains silent from day to day, he has upheld all the vows and prohibitions she has assumed. He has upheld them since he remained silent on the day he heard it. Again, the same idea. If one that could annul or confirm is silent, then it's a confirmation. If one protests or says, you know, it's not a good idea or whatever, whatever reason, then that can be, that's the process of starting to annul it. Um, if he revokes them after hear, having heard them, he shall bear it's in her iniquity. In other words, if it's like, yes, it's a good idea, let's do this, and then it's like at a later point in time, like, oh, I think it's not a good idea, let's not do this, well, then it's on him because he should have, like, he should have provided a little bit of uh, perspective initially. It's a little it's too late. Then you have to go to, to, through the pro- process, the proper process of, of annulment of vows to a betin, to a court, but, and um, let me speak about that in a moment, about having vows annulled in a court. Um, that's, the, that's the final process if all these other checkpoints fail. Let's continue verse 17. These are the statutes with the, which the Lord commanded Moses concerning a man and his wife, a father and his daughter in her youth while in her father's house. Again, we're talking here about a young girl in her father's house as well as a young girl who is betrothed, etc. Now, I want to get back to, to the idea of annulment of vows. What if, like, okay, what if... A person does it who's older. What if a person does it and no one prevents and no one like provides any, any balance or any perspective? And now it becomes a binding oath or vow or vow or oath. And so is there a way out of it? The answer is yes, but now you got to go to a betin. Now you got to go to a court of three judges, Jewish judges, to annul the vow, which is, by the way, why on Yom Kippur at Kol Nidre, there are three people in addition to the chazan, to the cantor, the, the, the cantor is typically flanked by two people, each holding a Torah scroll that, per, that, that, that serve as the betin of three to annul all of the community's vows. Does that make sense what I just said? When you go to synagogue, next time you go to synagogue on Yom Kippur, when Yom Kippur begins, Kol Nidre, right? The opening, the opening service of Kol Nidre night. You'll notice the cantor standing up there. They open up the ark. Two more people take out Torah scrolls and stand on either side of the cantor, which form a de facto betin, a Jewish court, a mini Jewish court of three judges that then serve to annul, I don't know why I'm air quoting it, to annul, <laughs> it's actually what's happening, the vows of the congregation. To, and, and, and the point really is, if we're entering Yom Kippur, we got to do it with a clean slate, no baggage. Now, by, you should know this was used against Jews historically and f- with anti-Semitic tropes, like, oh, yeah, Jews borrow money, and then they annul vows, and then they let themselves off the hook. So that's how they steal money and don't pay it back, because they say, all my vows and obligations, poof, right, 
get out of jail card. Obviously, that's not what it is. If you owe somebody something, you got to pay it back. That's not a vow or an oath. This is very specifically about certain types of vows and oaths that can be annulled. Not everything can be annulled, but the ones that can be annulled. So, in summation, the, the oaths and vows that can, C-A-N, be annulled, there's a possibility for annulment. Either it could be done by one's parent or one's spouse under certain circumstances, or, or spouse-to-be, or by a betin, if all else fails. And the idea here is that it's, it's the benefit of someone to have them annulled from time to time if one is not able to keep them because, you know, we always, we, all of us make commitments that we end up not being able to, to, to keep. Yes, Ray. Oh, hold on. My inter- is, yeah. is, this, is, this, is this today? Is this happening today? I mean, if your daughter says something, is this a today thing? No, I mean, I tell Reva all the time, you know, thing, good practices. But no, I'm not, I'm not busy annulling her vows. She's not, they, no. It's not, no. I mean, a vow and an oath would be a more of a formal declaration as opposed to like, um, uh, I don't like, um, uh, well, I don't know what what doesn't she like to eat. I, I'm trying to think of a silly example. No, it's not it's not an everyday type of thing. But so I want to clarify. So when we talk about oaths and vows, it's more formal oaths and vows. Like when it, oh hold on, it looks like my internet is not stable. Give me a second. Hold on. Thumbs up when you can hear me again. Am I back? Thumbs up. Okay, good. I know it cuts out. I see it's popping up. It's unstable a little bit. So we're trying to 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 power through this. Um, okay, so. Everyday language, you know, hey, you know, I'll, uh, um, uh, whatever it is. Like everyday conversation, it doesn't rise to the level of a vow or an oath. A vow or an oath is more of a formal commitment that one needs to take seriously. Now, in Judaism, we, take, we should ideally take everything that comes out of our mouth seriously, but there are certain things that would rise to this level. But if one would take, for example, a like religious um, um, restriction, you know, if somebody is starting a mitzvah or whatever, makes a commitment to something, then to break it, you know, would be, well, number one, it wouldn't be good to break a, a positive thing. So, so for sure, don't do it. But, um, sorry? Ray, what you should take a vow. Yeah, but it's not a, yeah, no, we don't take vows. That's, that's, in America, they take vows. In America, you write vows and everything. That's not a vow? Oh. Nah, it's, it's, no, it's, it's, a, it's, it's a declaration and an acceptance. It's not a vow. It's not a vow. It's not like I, okay. that's the English stuff. I promise to whatever, to, you know, sickness and health, whatever they say in the movies, right? That, that stuff is more of a, of a, of an Americanische, it's, it's more of an American okay. thing. In, in, uh, at the chuppah, you, the husband says, Hariyamukudeshesli, behold, right. you are betrothed, and she accepts, and that's, that's what makes it. It's not a vow as much as it is kind of a legal action that is broken with a get, with the get, with a divorce get. Um, what about the one we make at Simchat Torah? Ah, the resolutions, yeah. So this year I'm going to. Call again? It's a hachlata. It's, it's a resolution, a positive resolution, hachlata. Hachlata, so when you make a hachlata, so that's kind of like, you know, this year I'm going to go to shul every Shabbat. Let's say somebody says, you know, this year every Shabbat I'm going to go to shul. And then one finds that it's maybe not so easy, and maybe instead of every week, it's going to be, you know, every other week. Let's just say. I'm not suggesting this, right? But, but let's just say. So 
yeah, would one have to go in front of a bet din, in front of a court of Jewish law and whatever? The answer is no, because one recognizes when going into it that it's something that they're striving to do and not something that they're absolutely vowing and oathing to, if that makes sense. Again, I don't want to let us off the hook. We should keep our commitments. But it, there's a difference between more of a legal declaration and more of a, I'd like to. And along those lines, this is why, and some of you may know this, this is why traditionally when we say one of these types of I'd like to things, we follow it with a phrase called Bli neder, which means I'm saying this and not making an oath or a vow. So we actually say, you know, yes, this year, please God, I'll be at Shul every Shabbat, Bli neder. That means I'm going to try to, but I'm not taking an oath or a vow about it, right? It's not, I'm, not, I'm not rising to that level of commitment, but that's my intention. So what if you don't say Bli neder? What if you don't specify that it's not an oath? Does it de facto, does it by default become an oath or a vow? I don't know. I, I'm, my, my thought is no. My understanding, just the way Jewish Judaism is practiced, and people are not running to convene Bettins every day. Like, oh man, I said I would you know, do X, Y, and Z, and I'm not doing it. I, I, need, I, need, a, uh, I need a court. It's not, it's not a thing. But, but if one does something a little bit more serious, you know, more formal commitment, then it, uh, then it would fall into that category. Now, I'm sure that in the codes of Jewish law, there is a discussion about exactly what constitutes this avow, what constitutes that oath, what constitutes the level of where you need to go to convene a bet then of three experts to annul it, etc. I'm sure it's discussed, um, but that's a little bit more of a deeper dive than I'm ready to do today. So hopefully this has piqued our curiosity enough <laughs> that we're at least knowledgeable about the topic, if not knowledgeable directly in the entire topic. Okay, at least you know to keep it in mind as, uh, at least we know to keep it in mind as we go about our conversations. Now, let's, okay, let's jump into Numbers chapter 31, which is some unfinished business. All right, take, and you'll, you'll all know immediately what we're talking about because we just read about it last week, about the Midianites who sent the daughters to entice the Jewish men and idolatry and immorality and adultery and all that stuff. So here we go. Payback, just desserts, whatever you call it, is about to happen. Numbers chapter 31, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Take revenge. That's a harsh word, but take revenge for the children of Israel against the Midianites. The Midianites, remember it was the Midianite uh, princess who was with the, the Jewish prince. Anyway, so God says, they started up with you. They decimated your numbers. There was a plague that broke out. So, um, take revenge against the Midianites. And then God tells Moses, so lead, them, lead, lead a, a battalion or lead an army against the Midianites. And then afterwards, God says, afterwards, look at this language, you will be gathered to your people. By, by now, you should know that gathered to your people means death, right? Gathered to your people means back to the earth. So God tells Moses, this is going to be your final act. Your final act is, is going to be leading the Jewish people against the Midianites, and then that's going to be it. Okay? This is his swan song, if that's the right phrase. So Moses spoke to the people saying, arm from... I need to point out, Moses did not delay. 
You know, imagine if somebody was told like, okay, this is gonna be it and then you're gonna pass away. Be like, all right, so I'll do it in a few months. <laughs> no problem. If this is what's gonna be the end, well then, no, no. Moses immediately jumps on this. Moses goes straight to the people. Says, arm from among, your, from among you. Man for the army. In other words, let's put together an arm for the army. That they can be against Midian. I feel like the translation here is being a little bit literal, so it like, doesn't read so well in the English. Basically, let's gather soldiers and let's fight against Midian and carry out the revenge of the Lord against Midian. Notice the difference. God says, take revenge for the children of Israel against the Midianites. Moses tells the people it's the revenge of the Lord. And as the commentators point out, each one was worried about the other's honor. So God says, the Jews were dishonored by the Midianite assault. So go after the Midianites, take revenge. And Moses tells the people, you know who was assaulted? God was under assault because they went after us spiritually. And so God was under assault. Take the revenge of God against Midian. Either way, there, there's almost like a fight over whose honor we're protecting. So, and not, usually the fight is everyone's protecting their own honor. Here it's protecting the other person's honor. God says, I care about you. And Moses says, I care about you, God, right? So God says, I care about the people. Moses says, the people care about you, God. Anyway, it's a good fight to have. Who, who you know, who's more important? <laughs> not I or you, but you or I, if that makes sense. Each party saying the other one. All right, in my head that makes sense. I hope it's coming across over this class. Okay, thank you, Sarah. Um, next, how many soldiers? A th verse 4, a thousand for each tribe. A thousand for each tribe. In other words, each and every tribe should send a thousand soldiers. From all the tribes of Israel, you should send to the army 12 tribes, 12,000 soldiers. Now, I need to clarify. The tribe of Levi, the Levites, and the Kohanim did not participate in battle, in wars. They were not counted for that. They were not counted among the children of Israel, 20 to 60 for military age, as we've talked about like countless times in these classes. They were not. How do you get 12 tribes if Levi is out? Because you divide Joseph. The tribe of Yosef, Joseph, is divided into Ephraim and Manasseh, and that gives you 12 once again. So you have 12 tribes, not including Levi, and you have 1,000 soldiers, 1,000 yeah, soldiers per tribe, and so you have 12,000. So from the thousands of Israel... 1,000 was given over for each tribe, 12,000 armed for battle. In other words, from the thousands of Israel means from all of the eligible soldiers, men 20 to 60, from all of the eligible, 1,000 was chosen or given over from each tribe, 12,000 total armed for battle, as I just mentioned a moment ago. So Moses sent them. Who are, who's them? The thousand from each army. Sorry, the thousand from each tribe to the army. Them along with Pinchas. Oh, we know Pinchas. Pinchas was the, uh, the spear carrier. He knew his way around. Apparently, he knew his way around uh, um, weapons. So they, he sent the 12,000 soldiers along with Pinchas, the son of Elazar the Kohen, to the army. With the sacred utensils. Look at this. They went into battle with the sacred. You know what the sacred utensils are? Like the ark and the menorah and the, 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 like all of those, the sacred uh, tabernacle utensils and the trumpets for sounding in his possession. So he took all these things in his possession out to war. Now they mounted an attack against Midian as the Lord had commanded Moses and they killed every male. 
And they killed the Midianite kings upon their slain. In other words, there were Midianite kings that were killed amongst the, those that were killed. Evi, yeah, in Hebrew it's, it's Evi. Evi, Rechem, Tzor, Chor, that looks like Reba, I don't like that. Reva, in Hebrew it's Reva, Reba, Reva. The five kings of Midian, there were five kings of Midian, the Torah tells us, they were all killed. Oh, and Balaam, remember the prophet who came up with the plan? He was the bad guy. Remember that guy, the evil prophet for prophet? And Balaam, the son of Baar, they also slew. I added the word also. They slew with the sword. So he was also killed in this battle. By the way, the commentaries say, Hargu could mean they killed or it could mean he killed. And I believe there's a tradition that Moses himself killed Balaam. And I feel like I need to toggle our good friend Rashi to get some clarification um, no, let's see. No, Rashi has another interesting insight. So let's, let's do Rashi anyway. But doesn't tell us who. I believe that Moses was involved, but maybe I was wrong, because maybe Moses didn't go out to battle this time. It was Pinchas. Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't say that Moses went out to battle. It says he sent the twelve thousand with Pinchas, and the implements and the sh and the trumpets. Okay, all right. Remains to be seen who who did that. Now with the sword, let's take a look, look at Rashi. If we toggle Rashi, we have to at least learn one. So Balaam, the prophet, came against Israel and exchanged his craft for theirs. For they, the Jewish people, are victorious only with their mouths through prayer and supplication. And he came and adopted their craft to curse them with his mouth. In other words, Balaam adopted the ways of the Jewish people, which is through conversation, through speech, prayer and supplication. Um, so they too came against him by exchanging their craft for the craft of the nations who come with the sources. It says concerning uh, Esau, Esau, and you shall live by your sword. Basically what Rashi is saying is that there was the old switcheroo, right? When the, when the Gentile nations came, like Midian and Moab, when they came against the Jewish people now, they came with prayer. Prophecy and prayer they tried it. So the Jews said, you're going to come at us with our stuff. We're going to come at you with your stuff. So we'll use... Weapons, you come at us with words using the Jewish way, so then we're going to go after you with weapons using the um, nations of the world way. Uh, let's keep on going. Um, here we go. Verse 9, the children of Israel took the Midianite women and their small children captive, and they plundered all their beasts, livestock, and all their possessions. They set fire to all their residential cities and their castles. They took all the booty and the plunder of man and beast, they brought the captives, the plunder, and the booty to Moses and to Elazar the Kohen and to the entire community of Israel in the camp in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at Jericho. Essentially, it was a successful campaign. The men, the male, the males were killed, the women and cattle were taken captive, and all of the stuff was taken. Now, what do you do with all this stuff? That's probably your question. What do you do with all this stuff, right? All right, here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Take a look. Um, chapter 31. And there's no easy way to talk about war, and there's no easy way to make it sound like they all met on the battlefield and exchanged flowers, and that was it, because that's not what happened. I'm not, this is not an uh, indication of, you know, what we need to be doing today, or my stance on, on, on violence and war, etc. This is, we're studying what it says in Torah, and this is the story. 
chapter 31, verse 13, and obviously there's always lessons in this Torah stories, but this is the story that we are taught. Verse 13, Moses, Elazar the Kohen, and all the princes of the community went out to meet them, the soldiers, outside the camp. Moses became angry with the officers of the camp, of the army, the commanders of thousands and the commanders of hundreds who had returned from the campaign of war. So in addition to soldiers, they also had commanders and generals and all that stuff. Okay, like any, like any army, you need some hierarchy. But Moses now becomes angry at the officers, at those in charge. Not blaming the soldiers, but blaming the officials. And Moses said to them, did you allow all the females to live? Like, wh what is this? They were the same ones who were involved with the children of Israel on Balaam's advice to betray the Lord over the incident of Par, that was the idol, resulting in a plague among the, the congregation of the Lord. In other words, you, you killed the men, were pretty much the soldiers, right? They're worried. But then you let the women live, but the women were the ones that came into our, infiltrated our camp to then cause all the sinning, all of the immorality and the, and the idolatry, the adultery and the idolatry. So how are you letting them to live? It doesn't make any sense, right? So now, verse 17, Moses says, kill every male child and every woman who can lie intimately with a man you shall kill. There's no way to tell who exactly might have been involved, but every woman of age, so that should be, should be killed in this war. And all the young girls who have no experience of intimate relations with a man, in other words, anyone young, you may keep alive for yourselves, and you encamp outside the camp for seven days. Whoever killed the per... Okay, fine, so that is that. Now again, I don't know if there's any PC way of, of, of learning this. I'm, I'm pretty sure this is, it's talking about, you know, eliminating large amounts of Midianites. So, is it uncomfortable? Yeah. In 2021, this is uncomfortable. Understanding how they were an existential threat to the Jewish people and had caused existential harm to the Jewish people, does that change the way we feel compassionately about them? Perhaps. Can one try to draw modern parallels and say, you know, like imagine Nazi Germany and imagine, you know, that... Can we conjure up some sort of understanding of, you know, what that would look like to go after and, 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 and you know, eliminate a people that tried to eliminate and did eliminate amounts of your people? Yes. And by the way, I want to, I mean, I think on some level, are we ever going to fully become comfortable with this? I, I, I would hope not. I, I don't think it's, I don't think, uh, you know, I, I would hope that we wouldn't be like, yeah, for sure. Like, this makes total sense. I think part of our humanity is to say, you know, I'm a little uncomfortable. It's in Torah, I'm a little uncomfortable. And that's okay also to be a little uncomfortable, right? There are lessons, right? There are spiritual lessons. So the Kabbalists would say, the spiritual lesson is the Midian. Eradicate the Midian in yourself. Stop fighting with anybody else. The Midian in yourself. But what's the Midian in yourself? We actually had about a year and a half, two years of Kabbalah and coffee on Midian, if you recall. Midian is the idea of, of um, Midian and Kabbalah is the nature that we have to fight with others. Ironically, it's about fighting the nature to fight. So the idea of divisiveness, of intolerance toward the other, of not getting along with the other because they're different than you. So that's, mod that's the um, eternal idea of Midian because Midian was trying to sow strife amongst amongst the Jewish people, so Midian represents strife, and the idea is to eradicate any remnant and semblance of strife from within. So the mystics, right, 
the Kabbalists and Hasidic masters would say, how do we learn this section? Not as uh, pick up your, your, your arms and go after, fi find an enemy to go after. Obviously not. What it means today is the idea of, of making sure to fight anything that causes divert, not diversity, diversity is good, divisiveness. And, and breaks us apart, we have to fight to the last degree, fight it inside. That tendency that we have to, like, you know, cause machloket, cause fight, cause fights, to uproot that from our personality altogether. Anyway, again, a modern day understanding, not, not modern day, but a, a spiritual understanding of it that pulls it out of its literal. The literal is uncomfortable. Yes, it's uncomfortable for me, but it's, um, it's what's here. Now, I do want to mention a few things. Um, what did I want to mention? Oh, how many Jews died? So the Torah told us two portions ago, at the end of the Torah portion of Pinchas, sorry, at the end of the Torah portion of Balak, it says that 24,000 Jews died in a plague, and then it says others were killed by Levites. So our sages tell us that every Levite, sorry, they were killed by the judges. There were judges that judged those that had sinned and committed the various crimes, and they were executed by Jewish law. They were put to death for, for idolatry, adultery, whatever it was they were put to death for. It says there was a total of 176,000 additional Jews who were killed, which means that it was a total of 200,000 Jews that were killed on, on, on account of the Midianites. Now, again, not to take away personal responsibility, but there was a sense of, not a sense, but there was a, a, a massive loss that came that was stirred by the Midianites, and thus, you can imagine how that was seen to be something that uh, needs to be taken care of. Let's continue. Um, and you, in other words, you soldiers, encamp outside the camp for seven days. Whoever killed the person or whoever touched a corpse shall cleanse himself on the third and seventh day, both you and your captives. We know this before. When somebody comes in contact with human death, there's a process. So just reiterating the process here a little bit. All garments, leather articles, and and any goat product, okay, I guess that was common then, any goat products and every wooden article shall undergo purification. So these items need to be purified essentially in a mikvah or a koshering situation. Elazar the Kohen said to the soldiers, verse 21, Elazar the Kohen said to the soldier returning from battle, this is the statute that the Lord commanded Moses, only the gold, the silver, the copper, the iron, the tin, and the lead, whatever is used in fire, you shall also pass, you shall pass through fire, and then it will be clean. We're talking here about koshering something. Something like, let's say, utensils, a pot, pots or pans. Remember, they took all the, the booty of the Midian. In other words, they, they took the, the loot of Midian, it included items, included vessels, included pots and pans and utensils and whatnot. So how do you kosher them? How do you make them kosher? Whatever was used with fire, whatever you cook using fire with, right? So you shall pass through fire and it will be clean. It must, however, also be cleansed with sprinkling water. That means mikvah. And whatever is not used in fire, you shall pass through water. So you could, you could either kosher something. And we do this today. This is where we learn the laws of, of koshering. How do we kosher something that was used for non-kosher beforehand? So you either put it through fire or you put it through hot water. And then you dip it in a mikvah. That's the way it works. Um, so on, on a very simple level, just to, be, to break this down very simply, let's say a, pers a person decides they want to become kosher. They want to go kosher. So from now on, only kosher food in their kitchen, which by the way, it's eminently doable and it's very, it's incredible. 
So I encourage everyone to at least consider it at some point to go kosher. It's kosher, it's healthy for the soul, healthy for the body, it's fantastic. And there's some basic framework. Obviously, you don't mix meat and milk together, only bring stuff that have a kosher symbol into the house. But otherwise, it's fairly simple. If you make sure that everything that comes into the house is kosher, and then just don't mix the meat and milk, you're pretty much there. But what about, I have a pot that I used before with non-kosher. So what do I do? Simple. A pot, you immerse in boiling water. Because it, you cooked in it with water, so you immerse it in boiling water, you're done. As long as it's put in boiling water, it's done. And then you, and then you dip it in a mikvah, if need be. Frozen. Huh? Say it again. Oh, I'm frozen? You were frozen for a bit. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. I thought you were saying, well, how do you kosher? The whole kosher part. Ah, I gave you all the details. So I thought you were asking what happens if something is frozen. I'm like, frozen? You don't have to kosher because it's cold. No, but anyway, but getting back, anything. So did you hear what I said about a kosher, going kosher and bring kosher food in? Hold on, you're muted. I heard when you said it's easy to go kosher, but the whole description I didn't hear. Yeah, okay, sorry about that. It's, it's the internet connection. So basically, I, I don't know if it's easy, but it's doable. In other words, you just, not just, you... Make sure that everything that comes into the house has a kosher symbol on it. And then once it's in the house, just don't mix meat and milk together in the same meal at the same time and wait, you know, an hour or a few hours between one and the other and you're pretty much good to go. But what happens if you have a pot, you know, your favorite um, cooking, you know, stovetop pot and you want to, now you want to use it for kosher. You, can you kosher? The answer is yes. So you take a bigger pot that's kosher, put water in it, crank it up, crank up the fire and create boiling water, and then you dip the pot that needs to be koshered into the boiling water. Koshered. That's it. Forks, spoons, knives, metal. Frozen again? Oh my gosh, frozen again. Okay. All right. It's a sign. It's a sign we have to, we have to move a little bit quicker. All right, so basically you take whatever needs to be koshered. If it cooked, if the food that was cooked inside was cooked in water, Right, then you can kosher it in hot water, in boiling water. The way it absorbed is the way that it will release its absorption. So if it absorbed the non-kosher food, because you cooked, not you, but one cooked something non-kosher in a pot, so how do you release the non-kosher? Again, you put it into hot water and it releases the non-kosher and now it is kosher. So that, we learned this from here, verse 23, that whatever is used in fire needs to go into fire, but if it's... Um, not used in fire, you can use water, and that means boiling water. Fire, yes, fire's always in the bottom of the pot, but the food typically doesn't cook in the bottom of the pot. I don't know of anybody who takes water, puts it into a pot, puts the pot in the stovetop, and then sticks the food in the bottom of the pot. Doesn't happen. Which means that all the food that was cooked in a pot was on the inside through the medium of water. Which means you can get it out of the pot using boiling water once again. You can't just fill up that pot and boil it. It has to be submerged into a boiling pot. So you have a big koshering pot, which we have a chabad, big koshering pot. And like if I kosher a kitchen, I come with my equipment, with my big koshering pot and tongs, you know, safely handle all these things and gloves, all this good stuff. Anyway, the point is water through water, fire through fire, blowtorch you can use. Rabbis love blowtorches to kosher certain things that directly cook things with fire. And that's how you kosher a kitchen and kitchenware. Now you know. Now verse 24. Anyway, the point is, go kosher, it's good for you. If you have any questions, don't hesitate to reach out. Verse 24. 
Oh, and if you're already kosher, encourage someone else to go kosher. If they're, if they're, you know, if they're a vessel for it, you know, you don't want to like throw something too, too crazy out there, but it's doable. Verse twenty-four. Yes. So like for Stone Mountain, does a rabbi go into the kitchen before the conference? You bet. Rabbis come in, a team comes in with blow torches. Excellent question. Oh, but commercial kitchens, industrial kitchens are so easy. Everything's stainless steel. You just come in with a blowtorch and like, you know, those stainless steel um, counters, you just go, shh, you just, you just heat it till it's red, glowing, and then it's kosher. I mean, don't touch it for a few minutes, but then it's... it's Do they have to hire special chefs or is this a rabbi that stays in the kitchen well the uh, rabbi stay in the kitchen anyway just to make sure that no one's bringing something that's uh that's not not that's not that's not kosher right make sure that nothing comes in that's not kosher um but the caterer is a kosher i'm sure i, I would imagine they bring down a kosher cater from uh from from new york or something i'm sure i'm sure they're going to do that or from florida i'm sure they'll bring in somebody um, although there's caterers here, but I, I just imagine a thousand people. I don't know if anybody is. I mean, you need a New York kosher caterer, pretty much, or Miami to handle that type of uh, that type of situation. That's a that's that's a heavy job. That's a heavy job. Um, but yeah, the retreat's going to be going to be fantastic. I have anyway. I have a I have a um, an idea in mind. It's meant to be somewhat secretive, but I feel like safe space to share at the DPP, that's where all the ideas get announced. At some point, I want to do like a secret pop-up dinner. Nice. With, uh, and I want to get a chef, you know, a local chef that's like celebrity or high-end or something, and just, I'll, co- I'll kosher it and make sure he uses kosher ingredients or she, whatever, just get a kosher, like a gourmet deluxe kosher situation. Anyway, stay tuned. I'm, I have some ideas, I have some leads, not like anything like solid, so if anybody has a lead, let me know, or any ideas of who might be a chef that would grab somebody's attention, like, oh, they're doing it, right? Let me, yeah. You know, I was also thinking, you know, for my, uh, for October 1st, for the, you know, for the, for the, yeah. for the Lachaim, to do a uh, holla tasting. Oh. Different varieties, you know. Yeah. Upscale foodie hollas. Yeah. Different, like three different. Now the big trend, I will say the big trend, because, you know, Jews are foodies nowadays, so the big trend is sourdough. Everyone's doing sourdough challahs and, or sourdough breads as challah, and it's like sun-dried tomato and like all the... Anyway, it's, it's, getting, it's getting super fancy. Fancy schmancy. So a lot to talk about. All right, let's jump back in. I'm looking at the time. We're getting, we're getting a little bit closer to the time, so let's jump back in, and let's see if we can... Let's see how much further we have with this one. Uh, yeah, yeah, she's uh, she's the real deal. Where is she? New York, probably. Israel. Oh, she's Israel. Okay, okay, maybe. But I feel like maybe we can get some some local talent, which might be interesting for them also. Anyway, like, what about a southern kosher? Anyway, I have, there's a lot of ideas that I have. Um, but yeah, let's uh, let's definitely keep the conversation going. Let's talk about the aftermath of war here. Verse 24. You shall wash your garments on the seventh day and become ritually clean. Afterwards you may enter the camp. So all of that is what Elazar the high priest said to the people from Moses said to the soldiers. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, 
take the count of the plunder of the captive people and animals, you together with the lust of the Kohen and the paternal leaders of the community, you shall divide the plunder equally between the warriors who went out to battle. Uh-oh. Unstable. Hold on. Hold on, hold on. Thumbs up when you can hear me again. I know I cut out there. Thumbs up, okay. So you shall divide the plunder equally between the warriors who went out to battle and the entire congregation, and you shall levy a tax for the Lord from the soldiers who went out to battle, one soul out of every 500, from the people, from the cattle, from the donkeys, from the sheep, you shall take from their half and give it to the loves of the coin as a gift to the Lord. From the half belonging to the children of Israel, you shall take one part out of 50 of the people, of the cattle, of the donkeys, of the sheep, of all the animals, and you shall give them to the Levites, the guardian, the Mishkan of the Lord. Let's continue. Moses and Elijah the Kohen did as the Lord had commanded Moses. The plunder, which was in addition to the spoils that the army had spoiled, consisted of 675,000 sheep, 72,000 cattle, 61,000 donkeys. As for the people of the women who, no, who had no experience of intimate relations with a man, all souls were 32,000. The half that was the portion of those that went out to battle, the number of sheep was 300. And 37,500, the tax of the Lord from the sheep was 675. All this is just math. The percentages that were meant to be given to the, to the, the Mishkan and, and to the Kohanim, etc. The tax, uh, sorry, 36,000 cattle, of which the tax of the Lord was 72. 30,500 30, donkeys, of which the tax of the Lord was 61. 16,000 people, of which the tax of the Lord was 32 people. Moses gave the tax which was a gift to the Lord, to Elazar the Kohen, as the Lord commanded Moses, and from the half allotted to the children of Israel, which Moses divided from the men who had gone into the army. The community's half consisted of 337,500 sheep, the same amount they divided in half, 36,000 cattle, 30,500 donkeys, and 16,000 people. Moses took one part out of 50 from the half of the children of Israel, the people and the animals, and gave them to the Levites, the guardians of the Lord's sanctuary, as, the, as God commanded Moses. The officer appointed over the army's thousands, the uh, commanders of the thousands, the commanders of hundreds approached Moses. They said to him, Your servants counted the soldiers who were in our charge, and not one man was missing from us. In other words, they basically said, We didn't lose one soldier. Not one soldier in this battle died or went missing. We therefore wish to bring an offering to the Lord. And any man who found a gold article, be it an anklet, a bracelet, a ring, an earring, a body ornament, to atone for, the souls, for our souls before the Lord. Moses and Elazar the Kohen took all the gold articles from them, the total of the gift of gold which they dedicated to the Lord. So they basically said, you know, none of it, we, we're all saved, so any gold that we got, we want to give back as a donation to the temple, to God. So that Lord, the, the total of the gold which they dedicated to God amounted to 16,750 shekels. This was from the commanders of the thousands and the commanders of the hundreds. The soldiers had seized spoils for themselves. Moses and Elazar took, uh, the Kohen took the gold from the commanders of the thousands and hundreds and brought it to the tent of meeting as a remembrance for the children of Israel before the Lord. So I know I ran through that quickly, but I don't know. I feel like we got it. There was a war. There were things that they got from the war. And the idea was you can keep some of it and give it back. What did it do with the people? I don't know exactly. I'm not sure. But I imagine they were either helping out or whatever it is. I'm not sure what the long-term plan with that was. Um, but the cattle, I'm sure the ones that were donated went to, to be brought as sacrifices and offerings, and the other ones just became part of the, the larger flock. All right, so what's the moral of the story? Number one, don't start up. Number one, don't start up. It's not good. Number two, I told you on a spiritual level, we have the idea of midjan. Midjan means divisiveness. 
discord, dissent, right? The idea of fighting, infighting. We know that the temple was destroyed because of infighting, because we couldn't get along. And the temple will be rebuilt when we heal that amongst us. So the message here today is a positive, needs to be a positive one, which is um, that we have to heal all that divides us so that we can once again, or not once again, we can finally, once and for all, get along with each other. And this is the most straightforward path to Mashiach, the building of the temple, and all the blessings that we want. We also spoke about the importance of um, considering our words carefully and uh, making sure that the vows and oaths we take, we stand behind. And uh, we spoke a little bit about Yom Kippur as well. So, yeah, that's the message of the, the sacredness of our words, that sticks and stones may break our bones, but names will never hurt us. Not, so, not necessarily. The words that we say have an effect. We have to treat them as sacred. All right. Yes. Sure. So, the, synagogue, the temple... You're saying you just said because we couldn't get along. Was it the Jews that couldn't get along with each other? Yeah, the Jews couldn't get along with each other, yeah. yeah. It says the enemy only, the, the, the other nations only had the ability to, to do what they did because we were fractured. On a pragmatic level, that's true, and also on a spiritual level, that's true. We know that if a nation is strong and they fight, they band together, they can usually repel an enemy. I mean, un unless it's under, you know, unless there's... But think about it even this way. We recently had a class where we spoke about the Ten Lost Tribes. Remember in the, in the Mashiach course we talk, talked about? And that was a product of the Jewish nation splitting. And there was a southern kingdom and a northern kingdom. And they didn't get along. And there was corruption. And then the northern kingdom became vulnerable and was picked off one by one by the Assyrians. Well, again, a fractured people physically becomes more vulnerable, let alone spiritually becomes less worthy than if we're banded together. So... On every level, both pragmatic and spiritual, it behooves us to just get along. Very All right. interesting point, quickly. Yeah. You know, I was looking at different Jewish organizations, like in their events, and there was one organization where they had you register. And you know how, like, now, I don't know if you're familiar, but nowadays in the general secular community, if you sometimes you have to declare there's, it's not man and woman, there's all different variations. Yeah, yeah, of, yeah, yeah. So on this Jewish website, there was like 50, they wanted you to pick between 15 different things. I mean, talk about denominations, no, all sorts of... Diversity, yeah. I mean, yeah, but I mean, like, there was conservative, ultra-conservative. Oh, oh, yeah, denominations, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And things like that, there was like 15, so in a way... Right, kind of, reconstruction, yeah, 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 exactly. Was, yeah. New things, too, new ones. I mean, so that kind of puts us in that... Yeah. So, right, uh, yeah, and, and Chabad is always about, you know, trying to erase those. A Jew is a Jew, right. was the Rebbe's motto. Like, labels are for suits and for dresses, right. not, for, not for people. Right. So, yeah, I mean, there is the value in diversity that everyone has their identity and who they, you know, they're, it's a good thing. But when diversity becomes me versus you and we become pitted against each other, that's when it's gone too far. All right, I want to just respect everyone's time. It's a little bit late, so everyone have a wonderful day. No class tonight. I don't believe there's class tomorrow night, but we will be back very shortly. Hey, Sarah, good to see you. And Sandrine, and Ray, and Donna. Good to see you all. Have a great day. Take care, everybody. Pleasure. Thank you, Rabbi. Bye, everybody. Yeah. <laughs>